Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is my colleague, my boss, and a person who can answer just about any question that I throw at him. Mr. Dave Young, Principal and Senior Building Science Specialist at RDH Building Science. Funny, we work at the same place. Dave grew up in Ottawa, Canada and obtained his civil engineering degree from Carleton University in 19, does that say 1989? Wow, a long time ago, dude. Not that I can talk. He spent the summer after graduating working in Finland, where incidentally, I don't know if you knew this, Dave, that's where my mother was born, for a geotechnical engineering firm before returning to Ottawa and joining the structural firm Ajalian Allen Rubeli, where he spent the first 10 years of his career before moving to Vancouver, BC in 1999 to join RDH. Dave then moved to Portland, Oregon in 2004 to help start the Portland office and has been here ever since. Today, we are going to have some real conversations about building defects, building science, things you might not want to do, and other things you should probably know. I always wonder, you know, what led people to do the work that they do. And you have a really great origin story of what motivated you took you just from engineering into building science. So I think our listeners need to hear this story. I started working in a structural consulting firm and I was doing mostly failure investigation, you know, as things deteriorate over time and trying to figure out why they deteriorate over time. But one of the things that that really got me thinking about it was right when I started working 
buddy of mine and I bought a house in Ottawa. I really couldn't afford to buy a house at that time, but I did anyway. And it had a flat roof, which I probably won't buy again, but it had to have a new roof put on fairly soon after we bought it. So that was the first project we had to do. So we hired a, a roofing company to, to do the roof and they happened to be doing it on a Friday. It was a, a long day for them and they didn't get done until about 11 o'clock at night. That night we had a huge rainstorm. I was awakened somewhere around two or three in the morning by this water coming pouring through the ceiling and into the dining room. It was coming in columns of water. So I took out the ceiling of the dining room and it turned out that they didn't tie the roofing into the plumbing jack above the bathroom. So they came back after we got all the water out of there and they tied that roofing back into the plumbing jack and thought everything was fine. And then we kept getting these leaks and they would happen in the winter time. Water would just start dripping down on the dining room table. And I was trying to figure out why it's dripping. And it doesn't drip like that when it's raining. It drips like that when it gets cold outside. So what it turned out to be is the interior conditioned air in the house was migrating up into the plumbing vent around the plumbing stack and condensing on the inside of that and turning into frost. So whenever the sun came out in the wintertime, it would melt the frost and drip down on the, on the dining room table and cause that leak we had. It was actually condensation and frost. And so we were able to get up there with spray foam, seal that up, never happened again. And so that's one of those things that, that really got me thinking about how buildings work and, and what's really going on around us. What were your biggest lessons from that particular experience? Um, don't do roofing at night. <laughs> that's number one. But number two is, is really understand where the critical barriers in the roof assembly are and make sure that the interior air doesn't get to some of those places that are cold and can cause condensation problems and, and leak in elsewhere. And so tell me about uh, roofing over concrete and the difference between curing and drying, because this is such a big issue, not just in roofing. So tell me what we need to know about that. So there are a lot of roofs out there and floors as well, but we'll talk about roofs for a second. There are a lot of roofs around the country that are concrete on steel deck for a number of different reasons, and they're, they're usually structural reasons, vibration reasons, and, and other things like that. But as the building enclosure person, we have to come up with a roof design that goes over top of the concrete. So one of the other big issues in construction is compressing the schedule as much as you possibly can. So time is money. We want to get buildings done as quickly as possible, get them dried in as quickly as possible so work can continue after either a temporary roof or the full roof is on. But one of the things that I think people misunderstand is the notion of, of the 28-day strength for concrete. So 28 days is the time in which the concrete gains enough strength, usually that it can support itself or you can take shoring out but it continues to cure over time. The other thing is that the concrete during its process of hydration obviously has a lot of water in it and that water has to come out over time. 
there's a certain amount of water that mixes with the cement to create the concrete that we have. If you have a steel deck underneath the concrete, it can not dry very quickly to the inside, if ever. Some concrete decks are vented, so you can get a little bit of drying over time. But a lot of them are not vented, and so it can only dry upward. And so if we have to put a roof on that, we have to make sure that the concrete is dry enough that the roof can go down and not continue to, to dry after that roof is on. Because if we have a fully adhered roof, that vapor drive can blow off the roof membrane and then you have to replace it. There are other ways to deal with it. You can get vented base sheets and things like that that allow some of that pressure to dissipate. But usually that the time to get to the right amount of dryness is more than 28 days. Sometimes it's 60 or 90. And depending on the weather and, and the conditions you're in, it could be up to 120 days in the in the really bad cases. And so we really have to think about that, talk to the contractors about what their plan is in terms of when you're going to get a roof on and what kind of strategies they're using to make sure that the concrete can be dry enough and support putting on a roof membrane or any other membrane. The flooring industry has been dealing with this for a long time. Slab on grade construction where you put some kind of flooring over top and floors have delaminated over time that we've seen and and they have very specific requirements for relative humidity in the concrete. So for a roof, is there a particular measurement you're trying to get to? Or how do you know when you can find that? Because this is such a huge issue because nobody wants to wait for that concrete to dry. You know, what? Do, how do you mitigate that? Well, there are, there are a number of different ways you can mitigate it. There are some surface applied coatings and things that that lock in vapor. That's one approach. There are other uh, mixed design approaches that can speed up concrete hydration and add mixtures that you can put in that speed those things up. I'm not an expert in that yet, but it's something that, that I'm digging into a lot more and will continue to dig into because it is a big issue and it's all over the place. Yeah, we, we definitely need to get it right. Okay, so what about air barriers when it comes to roofing? Talk to me about the roof and air barrier locations. So air barriers are a critically important part of the building enclosure. We talk about it all the time. And one of the things to think about as you're thinking about air barriers is that they have to be continuous. They have to be continuous from the roof to the wall so that we don't have air going up into parapets or going out the building in places we don't intend it to go. So understanding where it goes in the assembly is really critical. To better understand the relationship of roofs and air barriers, I want to take a step back to make sure you understand the overall concept of an air barrier. The airflow in a building is important to consider, primarily because of its influence on heat and moisture flow in the building. The transfer of moisture impacts material performance and integrity. The movement of air affects the indoor air quality, thermal efficiency, and even the building's behavior in a fire. Air barriers are a key strategy to control airflow. They are not necessarily a single item, but more of a system of materials that control airflow between a conditioned space and an unconditioned space. Air barrier systems should be impermeable to airflow, continuous, able to withstand forces during and after construction, 
and durable over the expected life of the building. Numerous approaches can be used to provide air barrier systems in buildings. Some of the more common are exterior using self-adhered modified bituminous membrane sheets, exterior using precast, site cast, or tilt-up concrete panels, interior using gypsum board, or interior using a plastic or polyethylene sheet. One of the things that, that we often think about in our designs is in a compact roof, for example, there's usually a vapor retarder on the warm side of the insulation in our heating climate up in the Pacific Northwest and the northern climates. So we treat that also as the air barrier, typically. And so we make sure that that location ties into the wall assembly air barrier. So we have to know where we're designing the air barrier in the wall. And so the, the trickiest part is getting it from the vapor retarder on the deck over to the wall, particularly if we have balloon framing goes up past the roof. And quite often we end up putting in spray foam insulation in that transition. So it's critical that that spray foam, if it has to act as an air barrier, has to adhere to both sides of the parapet. And it's not, it's not going to adhere if it's wet <laughs> from condensation. Yeah, a lot of things don't like sticking to uh, wet surfaces. Some things do, most things don't. The other thing to think about is the contractors need to understand what that material is, why it's there. And one of the things I've noticed is we know it has to adhere to the, to the inside face of the sheathing on either side of the parapet. So if I go out on site and I see a parapet that's installed, it's got the sheathing on the roof side of the parapet, and there's nothing on the exterior side, but I see that spray foam that's in the drawings, I know that that's not going to stick to the outside of the parapet wall because it's not there yet. And so when contractors don't understand that it's there to be the air barrier, they sometimes think it's just a thermal barrier. And so obviously not intentionally, but they may not understand that it needs to adhere to both sides. So our one of our biggest jobs as enclosure consultants is continuing to educate the industry about products and, and components of air barriers and, and how those things are intended to go together in our drawings. And so it's, it's not always clear when you look at a 2D section through a wall. It's not always easy. Like when I'm teaching the CDT, I, I tell my class, I can't possibly teach you everything in you know, a couple hours a week for nine weeks. But what I can do is make you dangerous enough to ask the right questions or to notice that, wait a minute, this might be an issue, which is what I'm hoping to do with this podcast. So another thing we talked about, which I, I don't know how, but I'd never heard of it before, is we talked about sealing of the air barriers and frost crunch. What are you, what are you seeing going going on with the sealing of the air barriers? What kind of mistakes are being made? Roof assembly over steel deck is a prime example of this where the vapor retarder and the air barrier are not installed. So a number of, of roof assemblies or manufacturers don't have a, a mandatory requirement for a vapor retarder in the roof assembly. So sometimes you get steel deck, polyiso insulation, cover board, and roof membrane on top. And that's all you get. And that's like probably the, the least expensive roof assembly you can do. And so 
there are a lot of projects that may be budget challenged that end up with that kind of roof assembly. But that can be a very tricky and difficult assembly to deal with. So I was looking at a, a roof assembly that had that particular assembly. It was a tilt-up warehouse lake building, but it actually had a, a higher humidity occupancy inside, probably an occupancy that the designers didn't think would be there. But it was it was a high humidity environment. And so in our temperate climate in the Pacific Northwest, those kinds of roof assemblies, when the humidity is not super high, is right on the threshold of whether it will work or not. And so it's a very tricky assembly to use in, in this environment. As soon as you get that increase in humidity and no air barrier, that's where things start going wrong. So in this particular assembly, there was some steel deck that went over top of a wall. This is at a loading dock area. Most of the time, the steel deck hit the side of the tilt-up parapet and terminated there. But this one section extended over top of the wall. So, you know, when you're inside a building and you look up at a steel deck where it hits a wall, the flutes are usually sealed from the underside. Right. Except that you can't get to the top side flutes to seal them unless you do that before the cover board goes down. Or if you have, you have to really be paying attention to that, call it out on the drawings and make sure you get an air seal there. Because the air from the building was getting on the top of the flutes because steel deck is not airtight. It's got puddle welds all over the place and laps and things and, and air just flows right through it. So the air in this building was going up onto the top of the flutes, over top of the deck to the outside, where it was cold, condensing out there because it was cold. And then when it warmed up enough, it would run back on the flutes down to the lap and leak back into the building. So everybody, again, thought it was a roof leak when, in fact, it was condensation again. And so they were asking about whether or not they had to replace the whole roof. and I did a walk around the perimeter of the roof and I heard the crunching of frost underneath my feet everywhere. So anywhere, anywhere there was shade, the condensation froze at the underside of the roof membrane. And a lot of it had to do with the airflow and not having an air barrier and a vapor retarder to stop that interior humid air from getting into the assembly and condensing on the cold surface. That's not the kind of fix you want to have to pay for. <laughs> if, no. you, if you're going to have to repair something later, there's a few things on the building you just don't want to go wrong. And our buildings are getting more complicated. And people don't understand that you really have to take the time to make sure some of these things are, are really right, which is where you guys come into play. <laughs> I'm learning something new every day right now. Um, we haven't talked about wind uplift pressures. And I know that... Those, those kind of requirements are going to be different in different parts of the country. You know, for instance, we don't have hurricanes here, but we do get some pretty high winds during storms and in the wintertime. So what do we need to be worried about with wind uplift pressures when a roof is being designed? So a couple of things, and I'm going to use that same roof assembly that I just talked about. That particular roof assembly is a single ply membrane and it was mechanically attached. 
A brief side note for additional context on membrane roofs. For those that may not be entirely familiar, membrane roofs are typically a system for flat roofs and very low-pitched roofs where other materials would not perform. Flat and low-sloped conditions shed water slowly, so it's important to have a watertight covering, which membrane roofs will provide. There are several types of membrane roof systems. Built-up roof membranes, commonly called tar and gravel roofs, are made up of alternating layers of bitumen, asphalt or coal tar, for binding and reinforcing fabric sheets. Each layer is a ply and a roof has multiple plies depending on the climate and the specific roofing details. Modified bituminous membranes are an improvement over built-up roof systems. The reinforcing fabric and bitumen binder are combined into a single roll, making installation easier. In addition, they have polymer additives signified by the modified notation, which can make them stronger, more flexible, or more heat resistant. So it's important that architects consult with manufacturers for advice on the correct product to specify. SPF, or spray polyurethane foam, roofs are built up in two components. First, a layer of foam is applied to the substrate. The foam is applied at various thicknesses to provide the proper R value and slope for drainage. Second, a topping coat is added to protect the foam layer and create a watertight barrier. Fluid applied liquid membranes are generally used to repair or recoat existing roofs, but they can also be used for new construction with complicated shapes, details, or penetrations. They are also good solutions for the base waterproofing layer of intensive green roofs. Single ply roof membranes, which is the condition that Dave is highlighting in this episode, are installed in large sheets that are joined together to create one continuous membrane. Lifespan and ease to install has made single ply membranes a popular choice for most commercial flat roofs being installed today. There are two types, thermoplastic like EPDM and thermoset like PVC or TPO. One of the differences between the two types is their behavior when reacting to the application of heat and subsequently how they are sealed at the seams. Thermoplastic membrane roofing becomes soft when heated then hardens and binds when cooled. Thermoset membranes are fully cured during manufacture, so they can't be bonded to an adjacent sheet with heat or solvents. They can only be seamed with adhesives. When you have wind that moves along and blows over the top of a building, it creates negative pressures from the turbulence of the wind trying to get over the building. The higher pressures are in the corners and along the parapets. But the thing to keep in mind here is that if there is no air barrier component in that assembly, when the uplift pressure pulls up on the membrane, it starts to billow the membrane and it creates a vacuum and it pulls the inside air of the building into that space where it's cold and condenses and creates that frost condition. So it's important to understand what those uplift pressures are so we can design the roof to withstand the pressures from wind storms and design wind loading, but also understanding that we need an air barrier in that assembly to make it a, a durable long-term assembly and not pull that air into the wrong place. That's it. It's not really a good thing if things start flying off the roof. No. The other thing about roof uplift is when you have pavers on pedestals and we're putting those higher and higher on buildings. So 
it's going to be important to keep in mind how those get designed and there are some methodologies for doing it i think it's just getting introduced into the into the codes on how to do it so that's it's something that's becoming more prevalent i'm seeing it on and i have been for a while now probably probably really started seeing a lot back in my Ancrum days. I mean, I'm specifying them all the time on projects. I think, you know, people, especially in any urban area where they're trying to make use of any space they can. But I also hear a lot of questions, not just in designing the pavers, but how they get attached and how the other parts of the roof have to happen if you're going to have pavers. Don't even get me started on vegetated roof assemblies. I mean, if I had to pick the one worst specification I've ever had to write, it's vegetated roof assembly (laughs) sections. I mean, I would, if I never had to do another one, I'd be really happy. Let's talk about building movement because that's, that's really a big deal. And, you know, I don't remember people talking about it anywhere near as often back in the day as they are now. So we just talked about wind a little bit. Let's talk about thermal, thermal movement. What kinds of things do people need to be watching for and making sure they're looking at and doing in their design? So all materials have a a coefficient of thermal expansion, and we need to remember to pay attention to those materials that move more than others and accommodate provisions for them to move the way they want to move when the sun hits them and, and it gets hot and cold. You know, if if you're installing something at 70 degrees, it's going to cool down to maybe 5 degrees Fahrenheit once in a while. It might heat up to 200 degrees sometimes, depending on the color of it and how it absorbs heat or reflects heat. So just designing and understanding the extremes of what kind of temperatures it may see during its lifetime and making sure we have enough movement capability in there that it can take that. If we don't and we can't provide enough movement capability, then we have to make them strong enough to handle the pressures that are applied to them when they're constrained. So I'll use one example here. Last year, People may remember that it got up to 116 degrees in Portland. Yeah, we remember. Yeah, it was the hottest day on the planet. It was horrible. And uh, and I went out and spent the afternoon on a west-facing set of balconies in Portland. And I'm, I'm glad I went with my shorts on because it was hot. Oh. This particular building uh, was 15 years old at the time. And it had a continuous aluminum railing on the west elevation of the building. It never seen any problems over that 15-year life until it hit 116 degrees. So the aluminum posts were anchored to the concrete, and then there was a continuous aluminum rail on the top. So it was about 140 feet long altogether, which is pretty long for an aluminum guardrail. Right. But everything was spliced, and because of the the capability of the post to flex the expansion of the top rail was allowed to expand and contract without buckling because the posts were able to flex and handle that that expansion the bottom rail which is about four inches above the concrete in some locations the tolerance was quite tight to the post 
And because the posts are not moving anywhere because they're bolted to the concrete, when those bottom rails started to expand, they had nowhere to go. So the ones that were installed too tight buckled. So some of them buckled elastically. So they buckled a certain amount and we would expect them to go back to their original position when they cooled down. But many of them buckled inelastically. So they buckled beyond their ability to go back to where they were. And so I think there were 10 or 15 of those ones that had to be removed and, and replaced. But that you know becomes a life safety issue if the glass and the railing isn't supported by anything on the bottom anymore. You can't let people go out there until it's protected. So, you know, as climate change continues to evolve around us, it's something that I think we need to start thinking about in terms of extremes and building resilience. The fact of the matter is, is we're already seeing extremes. It's not yeah. something we can afford to say, oh, that's not going to happen here. Or that was a, a one of. I don't think anybody believes that at this point. It's only going to become more prevalent, would be my assumption where we sit right now. Yeah. So how about deflection in the building, live load floor deflection? What do we need to be concerned about that maybe not everybody is and it's causing problems? So buildings are designed for a certain amount of live load deflection. And we have to make sure that we don't allow our, our cladding materials to get crushed by that deflection that happens normally if, when slabs get loaded or floors get loaded. And one of the locations that tends to come up is around the rough opening of windows. And we have sealant joints that go in. There's usually a water shedding sealant joint and there's usually a, an air barrier sealant joint in the window assembly somewhere. We have to make sure we accommodate that deflection. And a lot of sealant joints are class 50 meaning they'll expand 50% and compress 50%. Okay. So the joint needs to be twice as big as the deflection that the structural engineer calls out so that when the sealant compresses its 50%, there's still room in there and we're not loading the window system. Okay, what about seismic drift? I know not everybody is at higher risk for earthquakes like we are. But that's a big issue here. So tell me a little bit about what, what are, what's going to happen if we don't properly address seismic drift and how do we properly address it in layman's terms? Because I don't typically understand 80% of what you say to me. So <laughs> explain it to the kindergartner. <laughs> the main thing we're trying to avoid is having things fall off a building in an earthquake. And so the structural engineers are tasked with designing a building and limiting the lateral drift of the building. So each floor has a limit of drift that it can see in an earthquake and everything needs to stay on the building effectively. We have to talk with the structural engineer on the team to make sure we understand what that limit is for that particular building. And then also understand what kind of cladding assemblies and glazing assemblies we have are they rigid? Are they flexible? Are they big panels? Are they small panels? Small panels have a lot of opportunity to absorb that, that drift and flex in a building. And they can bend and, and not fall off. Rigid materials like brick masonry, for example, 
will stay fairly rigid as the building behind it is moving. And so we need to make sure that as the building is drifting, adjacent sections of cladding are not going to crash into each other. And then every floor will, will drift it a certain amount. So we want to provide one location on the floor for the lateral drift joint so that we don't have step joints. And quite often, I see a brick go up to the underside of the slab, and then there's some kind of a spandrel that comes down for a window head that's two or three feet below that. And so there's, a, there's an offset in that horizontal drift plane of two or three feet. And nobody thinks about what happens at that interface in that two or three feet where the panel above the window is getting dragged by the floor above it. And the brick panel beside it is sitting on the floor below it. And that's where you get that crashing together potential. So just walking around the building and understanding where those steps and, and drift joints occur and trying to eliminate that. And if you can't eliminate them, you have to understand how much drift is expected and how to accommodate that with sacrificial flashings or something that can crush instead of, of racking those two rigid materials together. So a lot of these requirements, thermal requirements and deflection and seismic drift and those kinds of things are largely dictated by code. Uh But code is often the minimum requirements. Is code level good enough in some places? I think uh, there's the common common joke, the building code is the worst building you can build legally, right? (laughs) Okay. But that's not reality. The, The reality is, there's a lot that goes into determining requirements of the code when it comes to structural items. You know, the, the wind maps for the whole country have just been revised in the last couple of iterations of the code to reflect what people have learned over that period of time. They were a little bit too conservative and they backed off a little bit. So when you, when you ask, is it good enough? They're not going to be perfect. There, you might have some freak event that exceeds what most of those code requirements are, but they're also not intended to meet those freak events either. Right. They're, they have a certain probability where most of the time you're going to be fine. The odd time, it's going to exceed what those maximum code requirements are. So there's a bit of a balance there. Okay, so one of my... I don't know if pet peeve is the right word, but one of the things I find very challenging as a spec writer is material compatibilities. And when it comes to especially the enclosure, the roofs, we have so many different materials that are being specified that if they don't all work together, you're going to have a big problem and it's going to be an expensive problem. And I have just throughout my career seen just, oh, here, just use this one where I've had the immediate, not at obviously at RDH, because this is our job, but the immediate feeling like, have you even looked to see if this one will work? How can people get better at understanding this? Because I know it feels like everything's changing every five minutes to me. I don't know how anybody, I don't know how you guys keep up and you're engineers. So talk to me a little bit about material compatibilities. Well, you hit one of the nails on the head. Things change rapidly. And it's really difficult to keep up with what's what. You know, one of the things I hear from contractors all the time is that they always want to have one manufacturer for everything on the wall. 
one of the reasons that they ask that question or, or try and drive it in that direction is that they know the manufacturer, if all of their materials are, are from the same person, there's a much higher chance that all of those things are going to play well together and they're, and they're going to be compatible. We often look at it from a different perspective in that some manufacturers have a lot of really great materials, but there's one material that they're missing. And so we, we want to get this other manufacturer's material that we know is really good and plays well with those things to go in there. Um, Warranties too. I'm sure that's another reason they would like to get that if they can. But when you actually start to read the warranties and you realize what what they say in there, usually it's it's they'll replace the material. But you have to somebody else has to pay for taking all the cladding off to get to it. So I don't drive decisions by the warranty, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. That said, if the manufacturer has all the right components and they all play together well and they're they're all good, that's great. One of the areas that we see issues with quite often is things like PVC roofing, where you turn up the wall and you have to lap it with a, a peel and stick, like an SBS or an asphaltic-based peel and stick usually isn't going to play well together with that material. And usually when you're terminating a roof, that roofing manufacturer is not going to have all the stuff on the wall above it. You're going to have two different manufacturers coming together for that detail. So Understanding what the products are that can go together is number one critical for anybody in, in the field building stuff. You want to make sure you get the manufacturer of the roofing and the manufacturer of whatever product is going to go over top of it to provide you a letter that it's going to be compatible. Each one of those companies has to provide their own letter saying we're compatible with them or they're compatible with us, that sort of thing. But with a lot of uh, plasticized PVC roofing membranes, they have plasticizers in them to make them flexible. When you put a, an SBS membrane over top, the SBS will pull the plasticizers out of the PVC and into the peel and stick, and it turns into a, a mushy goo that's like molasses, and it tends to lower the softening temperature of the membrane, and when the sun hits it, it runs out the bottom and you get these big black streaks down your white membrane. So that's that's one of the ones I've seen more often than not. There are some different PVC manufacturers and different membrane chemistries that can handle the SBS on top. So you just have to make sure you get the right ones playing together. We just did a, a building enclosure council webinar a couple of weeks ago and our guest is also a, a member of the Air Barrier Association of America. And he had a nice compatibility chart that he had that you can get on the Air Barrier Association of America website. And so that's, that's a really good resource for looking at where material compatibility issues might crop up. The other one that we see quite often too is cold fluid applied membranes and SBS. So similar transition from below-grade waterproofing, that compatibility right there needs to be checked every time. That's a good one. And you also said something to me earlier about an isolation membrane, um, if the materials are not compatible. And I 
didn't actually know what that was for. I've specified it before, but I didn't understand why we were using an isolation membrane. Yeah, you have to separate them so they don't play with each other. Good stuff. Those certification letters too. I can't point that out enough. If you're using materials from two different manufacturers, getting both of them to give you the letter saying, yes, it's okay to use it with that. We all want to know what we're doing and make sure everybody's on the same page. Another thing we talked about before was the galvanic corrosion of metals. Let's just talk for a minute. What things do you see where we have a problem over and over again? Because those are the things I want to talk about. This one is a is a broad one. And it really comes down to making sure that that metals that are in contact with each other are close on the galvanic scale. And everybody will say, oh, what are you talking about? So I still, like after 30 some years, have to look up the galvanic chart all the time. Um, I have a pretty good sense of, of what can go with what else, but it's really good to, to look that up. There are lots of resources on the internet that have galvanic charts and information on corrosion of metals together. But the closer that the metals are on that scale, the more compatible they are. The farther apart on that scale, the worse off they are. And so one of the things that that I learned a long time ago is that whenever you're fastening something of a dissimilar metal, try your best to separate them, whether that's a a rubber gasket at the fastener head or whatever, but make sure that the fastener is the more noble of the metals, which means the lower the nobility of the metal, the more corrosion will happen on that. So you want the the more mass material to corrode before you let the fastener corrode, if that makes sense. Actually, that completely makes sense to me. And another thing I didn't know, I might be learning more than anybody today, but but that's good advice. And and just knowing there's a galvanic chart you can look at. And I I I would have thought it would have been the other other way around, but it makes sense that you don't want your fastener to corrode. Yeah, it's got the least least amount of material, and it's what's holding the bigger metal on. Right. What can we be doing? to prevent many, just broadly, prevent many of these problems um, so that we do better, so we're not making these mistakes. Talk to each other. Gosh, it's so funny. Everybody says that, but nobody does it. <laughs> I know. Like, So, you know, the more and more siloed we get in expertise, the more we need to talk to each other. You know, going through projects with the integrated project delivery method, for example, where all the disciplines are, are meeting all the way through on a weekly basis and talking about all the issues as you're designing. That, that's one of the best experiences I've had in, in the design process. So the more we can do that, the better. One of the things, and this comes back to the, the enclosure area of things, is that we need to start doing a better job of identifying the air barrier on the drawings. It's it's something that's in, in the code in Washington, for example, I've been doing it for a long time, and identifying where the air barrier is in plans and sections, but calling out those components on the drawing to say, this is the air barrier. Another thing you had mentioned to me was getting better education for our trades. 
I think the automatic assumption is that if they're the ones that build it, they understand all of it. Huh. <laughs> think about uh, what you've learned today. You mentioned you learned some things about fasteners. You learned some things about air barriers. And there's so much to learn. I still learn something new every day. It's really just a matter of educating every single time we go to the job site and explaining the why we do what we do. And I've always found that when you go out and you're talking to the trades and, and you can tell they don't really want to do what you're asking them to do, as soon as you you explain the why and they get it, you see the light bulb go off, they're going to continue to do what's in the drawings because they understand why they're doing it. I totally get it. I'm a spec writer and there's things I've been doing for years because that's just the way I was taught at some point to do it. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've learned something and went, oh, that's why I do that. But one of the things you mentioned to me is getting out on the site and actually seeing how things come together. Even one afternoon changes the way you look at things going forward. Yeah. If you're a designer, keep going back to the buildings you've worked on over years and see where are the streaks running down the building. Where's the flashing not projecting the half inch off the cladding and it's touching because there wasn't enough tolerance there or it's at a flashing joint and you have a big black streak down the building because of that. Just going back and seeing how things perform over time is is really one of the biggest ways to learn. So final question. If you were the master of the universe and you could do anything you wanted, anything in the industry you wanted, what is the very first thing that you would change to improve our built environment? Because of our huge shortage of people, get a lot more interest in our building industry. Like people in high school, get them interested in wanting to work on buildings and and making buildings really cool and perform better. We need to be getting people interested at the high school level so they can get there. And that that means um, people who want to go into the professions, architecture or engineering or the contracting end, but also directly into trades. Not, not everybody wants to go to university. We need a lot of good trades people out there. There's a a definite shortage and then get them up to speed by next week so they can help <laughs> the review. Well, I, uh, we're paying the price for all those years that we told our children that you're not good enough if you don't go to college. And, and you're right. Not, not everybody is on that path. And they took all the shops out of the high schools and put in computer labs. Not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there was no balance. And now what are we seeing in school design? They're putting it all back. Yeah. And and we have a big problem that's going to take us probably the next 20 years to fix. I think that you also probably mentioned for that question, if I was going to give you two answers, which I didn't, you would say that we would increase building science awareness in our architecture and engineering programs. And in all honesty, I think that even with our clients, you know, they they don't really understand why that's so important. And I think that helps them make the right decisions for their building if they realize how much money they're going to save, you know, when some of these things don't happen and they don't cut corners where they shouldn't. Yeah. 
Well, Dave, I really appreciate you taking your time with me today. I appreciate you every day because I learn from you every time I talk to you and you're funny. But I just, I appreciate you coming today and I can't wait for this one to be released. Cool. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun and uh, I hope some people learn something and don't hesitate to call and ask other questions or look, look into learning opportunities anytime you can in building science. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.